James chapter 1. James, the brother of Jesus, is who we would believe wrote this book. This is the only book in the New Testament that he writes for us. He describes himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as the servant of, the, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing as he introduces the book here to us to the Jews who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. He is based in Jerusalem. He is leading the church in Jerusalem. He's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, traditionally, we would say he was probably the second pastor of that church at Jerusalem, um, following J- uh, James, who was the apostle of Christ. But as he's pastoring this church, he takes that church through several different times of conflict. Uh, And he does a great job leading this church. And and I think we'll see why he did such a good job leading the church as he gives us some commands here throughout this book. But he's writing to these Jews who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They are just at the beginning phases of facing persecution through the empire. And as he's writing to them, he recognizes that these Jews that he's writing to, they're being rejected by the Gentiles and the cultures in which they live because they are viewed as Jewish. But yet they're also being rejected by the Jews because the Jews see them as being a a false sect. The Gentiles see them as not being polytheistic. They believe in just one God. It's the way the Gentiles see them. And the Jews around them see them as being polytheistic. Because they do not believe in just one God. They believe that Jesus Christ is also God. And so they're contradictory with with the cultures in which they're living. And they're not really finding a good place to be at home in the world that they're living in. The theme of this book of James is that of spiritual maturity. And we're we're not going to be able to cover all these themes of maturity. but, But James definitely deals with maturity with this church. He is a pastor. He's writing very clearly. In fact, some scholars believe that this might be a compilation of several of his sermons. But as he writes, he speaks with authority. In fact, he gives over 50 commands. If you wanted to study through those, that'd be a great thing. You could study one a week. Uh, You could study through these commands that he's giving to them. He's giving them very clear commands for these believers. So constantly in this book, he's going to be encouraging us to evaluate our actions in the light of God's commands. This book is also equated to being that of a book of wisdom, much like the book of Proverbs, where Sandy just read from. As a book of wisdom, though, this is the New Testament version of that, and it's much shorter than the Old Testament version. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is 31 chapters, 915 verses. This is a short, succinct book, five chapters, 108 verses. In fact, if you'd like to take on the challenge, even though this is right in the middle of the length of books in the New Testament, a great challenge in your spiritual walk would be to memorize this book of James. I was challenged to do that as a high school student. I did it, and if you are around me in my teaching and my preaching, you'll find I often come back to this book that has made such an impact in my life. As Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorizing the Word of God is important. It helps us in our spiritual battles. And I am thankful that early in my life, I was able to memorize this book, commit it to memory, and I constantly fall back on some of the truths in this book. So as we begin this morning, let's read verses 2 down through verse 8. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. Let's look to the Lord this morning in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would allow us as we look at the truths of your word to glean truths that we can apply to our life today. God, may we, as we hear your word, may your Holy Spirit convict us of the areas in our life that we need to change. And God, as we prepare to leave here this morning, may we step out into the world, the life that you have called us to outside of this building, ready to face the challenges you bring our way. And God, may we look to you for the wisdom that we need in all those circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You think, why would somebody, as he starts writing a book, start talking about trials? Doesn't that sound just so exciting? But we all face trials, don't we? What are these trials? These trials are like challenges of life that God will use to shape our character. James tells us that why is God trying to shape our character? Remember what is his goal? He's giving it to us here in verse 2, that we would be spiritually mature. Often when we come into Sunday mornings, you know I do it as well, right? If we're opening up the service, what do we do? We invite you, encourage you to set aside all the pressures, the chaos, the trials of the week, and to be able to focus on God and, his, and God's Word. This morning, I want us to be very careful, but I want us to crack that door open just a crack. I want us to take just a minute and think through some of those top trials or pressures that God is facing right now in our life, what God has brought into our life. You'll see on the handout I gave you, I gave you a spot that you can write down five of them. If you downloaded the, the, the PDF offline, you'll see it there as well. And here's why I want us to do this. I want us to write it down so we can get it out of our brain again. Okay, so we're not having to constantly sit there and focus on what were my five. If you can't get five, write down one, write down two. What, what could these be? I mean, sometimes we have all kinds of pressures, right? Might be a damaged relationship that we feel like needs to be restored. Might be difficulty, as we even mentioned this morning, knowing how to parent a child. Whether it's a young child, a teenage child, an adult child, how, how do we respond as fathers, as mothers, as parents? Maybe it's a health issue that you're facing or a family member is facing. Maybe it's something that is just the normal routines of life. I mean, how many times do trials come into our life because of two major things, vehicles and appliances, right? How many of you have never faced a vehicle with a problem with a vehicle? Anybody? No, okay, okay. We've all been there at some point, okay. Teenagers, got it, Grayson. Good job. <laughs> Never had to worry about it, right? That's dad's problem, right? <laughs> okay. But yeah, as adults, we face those problems. Right? We have these stressors that come into our life. If it's creating stress, you know what we need to do? We need to look to God's word to say, how can we answer that? How can we grow through that? Because what's James telling us here? He's telling us that when those trials come, God wants to use that to bring us to a point of spiritual maturity. So this morning, we want to just identify it. We don't want to focus on it, but we want to be able to think about how God might be trying to mature us this morning through that trial. When we look at the beginning of that verse, the very first word that we see in our English translation is that of count. What is James telling us to do? To consider this trial, to reckon. This is an accounting term. This is taking that trial that's in our life and looking at it and not saying this is devastating, not looking at that and saying, this is going to defeat me, but rather to look at that and say, I'm going to count that. I'm going to reckon that as something. And what are we to reckon that as? Wow, that's a hard word, isn't it? Joy. So when those hardships of life come, we're supposed to be joyful. 
We're supposed to see that as something positive in our life. Now, what is joy? I would say it has to be more than just happiness. It's this deep-seated contentment in the midst of our hardship. And that happiness comes from anticipating the good work that God is going to do in us. We have to recognize that that trial was brought to us by God, and he is going to bring out some maturity in our life. Therefore, we can be joyful in the midst of that. We know at the end who's going to win. As we saw the last couple of weeks with some of the precatory prayers in the Psalms, we look to God as the righteous judge who will ultimately be victorious over evil. We know that evil will not win forever. Therefore, we can be joyful. We know our future home. We know the happiness and joy that we will experience forever in God's presence. Therefore, even in the midst of trials, when we're maturing and God is moving us to be that perfect person that he wants us to be, the person he wants to make us into, we can be joyful in the midst of that circumstance. Romans 8.28 tells us that God works all things together for what? For his good. Is that, does that mean it's easy? No, but it's for God's good. And because it's for God's good, it is also for our good. Philippians 1.6 gives us the promise that we are going through this process so that God can make us perfect. He's begun the good work in us and he's going to complete it when? In the day of Jesus Christ, when we will ultimately receive that stamp of perfection because we will be forever in his presence. Robert Gromacki gives the quote about joy, that joy is not mere laughter or a happy smile. Happiness can be manufactured, but joy must be grown. Have you thought about that in the midst of trials? Joy isn't natural for us. It has to be grown. It involves time and obedience. We can't short-circuit God's work of trials in our life, and neither can we do it by saying, I'm not going to be, obey God's word, I'm going to ignore God's word, I'm going to live life the way I want it, because then we will not be joyful. Because God will then, as a loving father, need to be correcting and admonishing us. So, James is writing to us, and he tells us to be joyful, not just in times of prosperity and ease, but in times of trial. You might say, wait, what? God, look, why can't my life just be easy now? I mean, come on. God, I, I, I acknowledged I was a sinner. I came to you as a needy person. I threw all my dependence upon you. I want you to guide and direct my life. I, I want you to be Lord of my life. So, God, can you just make this easy? In fact, God, you are able to do everything, right? So God, making my phone get a text or an email is not impossible for you. You can do that. So why don't you, God, in the midst of this trial, just tell me what I should do. Just send me a text. Send me an email. I'll be happy. God doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He gives us his word. And in the midst of that trial, what does he want us doing? He wants us going to his word, looking for the answers of how we should respond in the midst of this trial. In fact, James is one of the people he directed under divine inspiration to give us over 50 commands of how we can live our life. There will be commands in this book for whatever trial you are facing to help you as you get ready to come through that trial and to become the more mature person that God wants you to be. Notice here also that James says that we have trials of various kinds. Literally, that is multicolored trials. What does that mean for us? If you look at your list of trials that you wrote down, how many of them are very similar or in the same category? Now, a lot of times what we see, we have diverse trials. God is going to work on us in different areas of our life at the same time. 
He is going to whittle away at making us who he wants to, uh, us to be in, at different ways. He's going to have different lessons he wants us to learn. Why? For his glory. The multicolored aspect, though, I think also applies to us as a church family. Because God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can bear each other's burdens. So that we can encourage one another. So we can help each other to grow in the knowledge and wisdom and understanding of who God is. So as we think about this multicolored facet, the picture that probably came up in the reader's minds is that of a weaver who sits there and he's putting all these different colored threads together to make a beautiful rug. That is what God is doing with us. He is weaving all these circumstances together in our life and the lives of people around us so that we can be this beautiful tapestry of his grace and what he has done for us. As you go through trials, and maybe you're going through the midst of a trial, maybe there's somebody here in this church that has gone through a similar trial, and they can be an encouragement to you. They can help you to understand some of the lessons that God taught them as they studied his word, as they went through that same trial. And we can be an encouragement to one another. That is why it's important for us to participate together in the body of Christ, to have people that we can share our life with, that we can be participating with small groups, that we can be working with a smaller group of people in this church, that we can share each other's burdens, that we can help each other, we can help each other to grow spiritually. Because James's intention here is for us to mature. He looks at this multicolored version of trials, and he says that is all working together for you to be spiritually mature. So we're supposed to consider these trials as joy. We're supposed to recognize that we have these multiple trials that are taking place. Why does James refer to these trials as the testing of our faith? In times of trials and hardships, we we have to determine whether or not we are going to live by faith, continuing to embrace the truth that God has given us, or if we're going to go try to find the world's way of getting out of this trial, whether we're going to go try to find the way that we think is best, whether we're going to try to just get out of this trial as fast as we possibly can because, God, I'm tired of dealing with this, rather than the testing of your faith, which means, do I have faith in God that he is working me through a maturing process and I need to rest and wait on him to teach me as I go through this trial? You know, in our secular life, sometimes some of us have gone through certifications. Maybe you get done with a training course, and at the end of the training course, there's this hands-on portion. What's the purpose of that? It's to, to show that you have not only taken what you have learned in a book, maybe you learned through lectures, maybe seen, demonstrated, maybe you've done it with the instructor actually holding your hand and watching you do a certain task. But now there's going to be given a test. And in that test, you're going to be proven that you can accomplish what the certificate says you can do. That's exactly what James is talking about here, that we should be proven, that we should be, as we're going through this test, we should be proven that we should be certified as a person who can faithfully accomplish and learn and mature the way that God wants us to. Do we get a certificate from God that we can hang on our wall? No. What do we get? We get a life that's changed. We get a life that we can show to others through our example, through our experiences, through our discussions, that God has taught us that God is helping us to mature. So James here is writing to these these tribes that are scattered. What does he want them to do? He wants them to see this joy, 
be in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this hard certification, knowing that what is God trying to do? He's trying to mature them. He wants them to mature and to grow and to be more like Jesus Christ. Notice here that this word trials is the same word that the Apostle Peter uses in the next book. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by what? By various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. We just sang, to the praise of his glory. Have you ever thought that the trials and the maturing that takes place in that is part of that glory of Christ? Part of that resulting praise and his glory? What is the result that James wants? We said maturity, but look at the word he specifically uses. Steadfastness. This is a consistency, a constancy, a stick-to-itiveness, an endurance, or a patience. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who's that cloud? You have to reference back to the chapter just before that, chapter 11 of Hebrews, where it gives us the great example of these men of faith. What does it tell us to do? Lay aside every weight, and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Same word that James uses. The race that is set before us. When you're running a race, if you're riding a bike, whatever you're doing for exercise, say you're running. And all of a sudden you come to the bottom of a hill and you look up at that hill and you say, ah, too hard, I'm done. No, there's an endurance that God wants us to have. And endurance just to say, you know what, we know it's going to be hard, but there's going to be satisfaction. There's going to be joy when you get to the top. Have you ever experienced that? You look at something and you say, that is way too hard. But you get there, and all of a sudden you realize, there's joy because I overcame. I put in the effort to mature and to push my body that hard. And it's the same way in our spiritual life. Are we willing to push ourselves spiritually so that we will grow deeper in our faith and maturing the way God wants us to so that we can count that trial as joy? There's some examples we see in the Bible, these men that God had to put through some hard times before he was ready to use them. Let me just give you four examples real quick. Joseph. He's trafficked by his brothers. We want to put it bluntly. He's sold into slavery. He's going to be you know, used as a slave now. He gets down to Egypt. He gets elevated in the household. He refuses to go with Mrs. Potiphar. She accuses him falsely. And what does he do? He maintains his integrity. And he decides to go to jail. How long does he sit there? Sits there over 10 years he sits in the prison. He's forgotten, not just by his brothers, but he's now forgotten by the baker and the butler. He's basically going to die in prison in Egypt. And what does God do? God finally brings him out of that after he learned through that trial and elevates him to the second highest position in the land of Egypt. Moses spends his first 40 years growing up in Pharaoh's house hardly leading, leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then he slays an Egyptian. What does he do? He spends the next 40 years of his life in the wilderness. He spends the first 80 years of his life just waiting for God to use him. And then the last 40 years of his life, he's actually leading the people of Israel. And does that not come with its own set of trials? How many times do we find Moses on his face before a holy God saying, God, 
you who saved this people, don't destroy them. For your name's sake, don't destroy this people. Okay, Moses, 80 years learning the stick to the endurance that was needed to even lead the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. David, he's anointed as king as a youth. But even as we've looked at Psalms the last three weeks and we see he's running from Saul, why is he running? Wasn't he anointed as king? Yes. But he waits. Anointed probably as a young teenager. And it's not until he's 30 years old that he becomes king. During that time, what's he doing? He's just enduring. He's learning with patience. Enduring with patience. Learning what God would have him to learn. At the end of this book of James, James uses as a reminder of the steadfastness and to illustrate this steadfastness in trials, he illustrates it in chapter 5 with the life of Job. What do we know about Job? Job has some trials in his life, right? Lost his livelihood, lost his children, his wife's telling him just to curse God and die. I mean, what kind of encouragement is that that he's getting at home? And then at the end of the book, God rewards him. But what happens in the middle? We see this internal struggle. We see this struggle of a man who constantly has to go back to God and say, I know who you are. I have my confidence in you. And yes, at times he wavers in that, but he always comes back to, I will trust in God. And at the end, God does bless him. So what's the goal of this endurance? It's that we would make righteous rather than sinful choices. We don't want to go through these trials constantly making sinful choices and lacking no improvement to our character. We want to go through these trials with true endurance, learning the righteousness of God, that he is completing that work that he has started in us. So now that we know the purpose of James' writing is that we will be steadfast in our faith, that we'll be joyful, that we'll be maturing when we're facing these trials, let's look at the second command he gives us in this book. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So what is this wisdom? Someone has defined, this, that has defined wisdom as being different from knowledge in that knowledge is the ability to take something apart, but wisdom is the ability to get it back together again and working. Okay? It's easy for us to take a piece of machinery and start taking bolts and screws out, taking gears out and start pulling everything apart, right? That's knowledge. I now know what was in there. Wisdom is having the, 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 not only the knowledge, but the ability now to be able to, with life experience, put that thing back together and not have any leftover bolts or screws. How often does that happen? Okay? Because most of the time, we're not the designer, we're not the engineer. But that is the difference, definition of, between wisdom and knowledge. We often will use just the simple definition of wisdom of that of being applied knowledge. Sandy read in Proverbs chapter 2 this morning, and did you notice as she read that? that there is a distinction made between wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. But yet, though they are distinct, in Proverbs chapter 2, they're all woven together. Because God is going to give us knowledge. He's going to give us understanding. And he's also going to give us wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 says, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding... If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. 
For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, God has more wisdom than all of mankind combined. Why? Remember we talk about knowledge and wisdom. One is you can take it apart. The other is you can put it back together. Who designed this universe? Who put all of this together? Who can explain how the intricacies of gravity work? I can't. God can. How how do we know how the planets are all held in place? How large the universe is? We're still discovering that as humans. God knows. He designed it. He created it. He spoke it. He put it into existence. So how does this apply to your current trials? Do you recognize your finite perspective and that you cannot possibly know all the implications of what you're facing in the trials that you wrote down this morning? Do you know how your actions and the next decision you make in each of those trials will impact your life next week, a year from now, 10 years from now? We don't. Who does know all that? A sovereign, holy God. So do you find yourself, as you're thinking about this and the stresses that are mounting in your spirit because of this this trial, do you find yourself thinking, I just don't know what to do about that trial? Do you think about that trial that you listed this morning? Do you find yourself muttering, I just don't know what to do? Without naming the trial this morning, I'd like us to simply acknowledge that verbally together. Will you say that with me? Just simply, I don't know. Let's say it together. I don't know. That's where we're at, right? We need wisdom. Great thing about James is he's then going to tell us what to do. When we acknowledge that we don't know, what's he tell us to do? Ask God. Why God? Romans 16 verse 7 tells us he's the only wise God. He is that source of wisdom. He is all the wisdom. He gives us, it says here in James, he gives us generously and without reproach. This is describing God as our Father, as one who giving, is giving to his children liberally, more than we really need, and without bargaining and without insult. Notice that I said that he's giving to his children. There's an assumption as James is writing this book, he's writing to believers. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have not been adopted into the family of God and are not a child of God, he is not going to be lavishly bestowing his wisdom on you. But as a good father, he does not withhold good from his children. He only withholds from those who reject him and do not call him father. With his children, he doesn't negotiate this dispensing of his wisdom. He is going to give it to us. He's not going to be putting conditions on it. He's not going to say, only if you read your Bible every day this week, and if you pray every day, and if you give to the church, and you give to the poor, and you, you do the commands that you read in the Scriptures, if you do all that, then I'll give you wisdom. No, he's saying, I just want you to come to me and ask for it. In fact, Jesus simply told us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, go looking for this, and you'll find it. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, 
speaking to us earthly fathers, calling us evil, okay, because we do not have the holiness of God. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's why we need to be going to God and asking him for his wisdom because we have a heavenly Father, a good heavenly Father, who wishes to give us wisdom and blessing. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power that's working in us. We are never going to exhaust God's wisdom, his power, or his goodness to us. In verse 6, James continues, but he says, but ask God by faith, not doubting. Ha! I knew it! There was going to be a condition, right? Here it is. He puts a condition in there, right? God's not going to give it to me. He's going to make me work for it. Oh no. What's he say? Without doubting. And I would say here that that doubting is not speaking about how God was God withholding the dispensing of wisdom because I doubt, but rather how I should not be asking. I can't go to God asking, thinking, I don't know if he's powerful enough. I don't know if he has the wisdom. No, we should be going to God in the way we ask should be that without doubting. It's a lot like a child of God that we're looking for that answer and we're willing to go to him and we're willing to acknowledge that he is the creator of the universe. He is much greater than we are. He is bigger than we are. He is the source of everything we need. And so we go to him looking for him as the one who is greater, who is glorious, who is higher than us. And we go to him in humility and say we need him. When we learn about this greatness of God, it becomes natural for us to go to him. For us to have this elevated view of him and this diminished view of ourselves. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We cannot understand God. Since today's Father's Day, let me illustrate this with a picture of fathers. During our Coffee Connect time in a few minutes, if you watch some of the nursery-age children as they move about the lobby, perhaps one of them will get scared, he'll fall, maybe he'll skin up his knee a little bit, and he'll get hurt. What is their natural reaction when they know their father's nearby? Do they run away? No. Do they cautiously cry out, Daddy? No. What do they do? Maybe even before they can form the entire word, what do they want? They want their dad. They want their dad to come and rescue them. Why? Because they want to know that if they go running through their dad, that he's going to reach down. He's going to pick them up off the ground. He's going to hold them. He's going to protect them because they have faith that their dad can take care of them. That's the faith we need to have as a child. What do they not do? Some of the things that we do when we think about our trials and, and, and how we should go to God. Here's what they don't do. They don't look around and evaluate the circumstances. Hmm, Dad's on the other side of the lobby. A lot of people between me and him. If I go for in a straight line, there's people in the way. I might get hurt again. I might get pushed over. So maybe I should go around the crowd. No, they don't do that. They look at how can I get to him the fastest. When they, when they get to dad, they don't think, oh, I wonder what the proper words I should use to describe what just happened to me. You know, I, I, don't want, I don't want dad to be guessing at what happened to me. I want to use the right words. I want to use the right terms. No, they don't do that. They're just going to blurt it out or just point, right? They're just going to, in their heart cry, they're going to express this to their dad. And they don't wonder, what's going to happen when I get there? Will he just tell me to get over it and I need to deal with it on my own? 
In fact, you know, it looks like he's helping somebody else. And I'm probably just not as important as what he's dealing with right now. So, you know, I, I know that if I could find my way to the kitchen, I'll, I might be able to find an ice cube and put that on the, and, and, and help with the pain a little bit. And, and then I don't have to bother my dad. No, that's not what a child does. But how many times as spiritual children is that how we treat our father in that we don't go to him? No, they don't do this. They act in faith. They run to their dad in the shortest way possible, never doubting that their dad's going to help them. And when they get to him, they don't stop and think, what do I need to do to get his attention? Will he even recognize me? Will he know I'm his child? Uh, Will he even be concerned about my need? No, what do they do? They get there and they launch themselves at their dad. They don't get there thinking, you know what? Maybe I'm getting too big. I mean, mommy's been telling me I'm becoming a big boy, right? So, so, so maybe I'm gaining too much weight. Maybe my dad can't pick me up anymore. No, they go running at the dad. They jump up into his arms, expecting him to take care of them, to hold them, protect them, and meet their needs. That's exactly how we need to be acting as a child of God. In fact, for those of you that have older children, you know that the day eventually comes when a child has to learn that, yes, they are too big for daddy, right? I remember the day my daughter exuberant, excited about something in life, comes running across the living room and launches herself at me to catch her. As a young teenager, too big. Fortunately, it added safely. We both landed on the floor. There was no trip to the hospital. But, you know, she learned that, you know, she outgrew her dad. You know what? That never happens with us and God. We will never outgrow God. He is bigger than all of the trials in our life. So James tells us in verse 6 that we're supposed to ask in faith, not doubting, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. We're to ask without doubt, because the person who is double-minded, who keeps going back and forth on whether or not God can meet his needs, is not going to have his request answered. We have an example of this in Scripture, the Apostle Peter. What happens one night? Jesus gets done with his ministry there. The disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up. Jesus isn't with them. The disciples are afraid. All of a sudden, they see a person walking toward them across the waves. They think it's a ghost at first. Then they hear Jesus speaking to them. They recognize it's Jesus. And Peter, great man of faith, right, says, Hey, Lord, if it's you, tell me to walk out to you. Jesus says, Yeah, come on. What's Peter do? He swings his feet over the side of the boat. He puts his feet down the water. He's like, Hey, pretty cool. Pushes off the boat, stands up, starts taking a few steps. He's doing great, right? And all of a sudden, he's double-minded. He starts looking at those waves and saying, you know what, God? Um, Maybe these waves are too big. Maybe I can't do this. And what happens? He starts to sink. And then you see what happens right away? He turns right away and says, Lord, save me. He recognizes, wait, everything I just learned about drowning in the Sea of Galilee is probably going to come true. I need somebody that can help me, and it's the same person who told me to get out of that boat. He's double-minded. What could he have benefited from? He could have not got wet that night, right? But instead, he had to get back into a boat wet and cold. He was double-minded. That's the picture that's given to us in, in Scripture. But how often are we like Peter? In the midst of a trial, maybe we get a glimpse of God's power and we step out in faith. And then we begin doubting. We start to see the circumstances around us and we start to fail. We stop, to have, we stop having faith. And then we turn around and we call out to God again. In this passage, James is contrasting our too familiar pattern of being double-minded with that of being steadfastly fixed on God and living in the light and the power of going to God for his wisdom. 
So as we said earlier, I don't know. Will you join with me this morning in making that simple statement of asking God for, for wisdom? Will you vocalize these two statements with me this morning? Let's say them together. I don't know. God, I need your wisdom. That is where God wants us, looking to him for his wisdom. As I said, James writes this entire book, and this is really his theme, is that of spiritual maturity. So I see that there's some observations later on in the book of James. In fact, in James chapter 3, as any good Jewish teacher will do, he'll make a point and then he'll come back and he'll drill in on it a little bit more and he'll reiterate it. He comes back to this theme of wisdom again in chapter 3, and I'm not going to go through this. I've given it to you on your handout. You'll see it up here on the slide. But here we see what does God's wisdom look like. There's things that God's wisdom looks like and things that God's wisdom does not look like. This is found in James chapter 3. We need to not forget that God is compassionate. He's merciful. And he's allowed us to be a part of a local church that as we learn his wisdom, we can encourage one another. In fact, in James chapter 5, at the end of the book of James, as James is wrapping this book up. He says, is any of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Who's a cheerful person? That's the person who is joyful. The person who's come through trials with joy, what should we be doing? We should be proclaiming the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the mercy of God, and the wisdom of God, so that those around us can benefit from what God has taught us. We should be enjoying that wisdom of God and putting it to practice as we go through those trials and impacting the people around us. He says, if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Why? Because we do not have to go through trials alone. We can be as a body of Christ helping one another. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and spiritual songs. What with thankfulness in your heart? Why? To God. So what should we do? James chapter 5 verse 17. James tells us to pray fervently. We should pray in faith. We should pray intently. What is fervency? Fervency is both frequency and it's intensity. We should have emotion in our praying and we should be praying constantly. James recognized that he was weak when he was compared to God, yet he was not afraid. When we look at Elijah, what do we know about Elijah? It says here in the passage in James chapter 5 that he was a man of like passions like us. He was like us as a man. Was he a great prophet? Yeah, we view him as a great prophet. But you know what? He was also weak. He was afraid. He became discouraged. He ran from Queen Jezebel. He went into the wilderness. He wanted to just die because God wasn't working. But what does James tell us about this great prophet? He was also a man that could pray. Sometimes he was double-minded, much like we are. But he prayed. And he prayed intently. And God answered his prayer. He prayed and it did not rain. Think about that. His prayer stopped the natural element of rain. And then he prayed again, and it resumed. Was it anything about the great prophet? No. 100% about the great God. And Elijah fervently prayed. James was also not a stranger to fervent prayer. I think that is why, even in such a short book with over 50 commands, he has had such an impact on the life of the church through the centuries. Church tradition says that James spent so much time on his knees bowing before God that his knees were as hard as camel's knees. Huge calluses on his knees because of the amount of time he spent on his knees 
petitioning God. So here we see this brother of Jesus, once a skeptic, who completely rejected his brother as the Messiah. He was transformed by the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And he so believed in that intercessory work of Jesus Christ that he spent hours a day on his knees praying, asking for God's help and for God's wisdom. One of my favorite authors of prayer has written several books on the book of prayer. And here's two quotes from two of his books. First, God stands pledged to give us the desires of our heart in proportion to the fervency of spirit we exhibit when seeking his face in prayer. And also, the only limit to prayer are the promises of God and his ability to fulfill those promises. Think about that one. What's the limit to the promises of God? And if he's promised it, is there anything he can't fulfill? There is no limit to what God can do when a fervent man prays. So what's our application today? We should be praying for wisdom. We should be praying with fervency and without doubt. You'll see in the section that I gave you on the handout, also you see a digging deeper section. The reason I didn't even touch that today, because those are all areas where the commands that James gives us intersects with dealing with trials, intersects with how we should be asking for wisdom. If you've got time this week, I encourage you to go through and look at those specific passages in light of how we should be praying. How should we should be looking to God for our wisdom? Just briefly mention one of them. We should be studying God's word. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 tells us to be, that we should be equipped to know the will of God and we should be using God's word as a mirror. That we look at our life and we make changes based upon what the God's, God's word reflects back to us of how we should change our life. So if we're going to be praying for wisdom, if we're going to be fervent, if we're going to be without doubt, we need to be looking at God's word. We also need to share God's wisdom with the lost. We see that told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. We need to have a heart and a burden for the lost world around us. We also need to be praying for other believers to increase in the knowledge, in the wisdom, and the understanding of God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It's going to come up here on the screen. And so from the day we heard it, Paul here is saying, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That prayer that Paul had for the church is the prayer that I can have for you and you can have for me and we can all have for each other in this church. That we would be increasing in the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom. Islands, during this time when we're anticipating God bringing us our next lead pastor. We can see that as a trial. And this is how we should be praying. We should be praying for our elders to have wisdom in the men that they search for, the, the information they look at, the conversations they have. And we need to be praying for the man that God is preparing to come as our next lead pastor. And we need to be praying for his congregation, that they will be prepared for his departure. And we need to be praying that God will give wisdom in his church as a whole, that God will, as he brings us the right man, that there will be wisdom in the eyes of our elders and the man who comes that this church will continue doing what God would have this church accomplish. Fathers, it's Father's Day. Let's share our wisdom. We saw that in Proverbs chapter 2. I invite the music team to come forward this morning as they do. Let's bring this passage full circle this morning. I'd like you to join me with one more statement. Will you verbally commit this morning to joyfully enduring the test? Let's say 
these three phrases together. And may this be, as you look at that list and you think through the areas that God is putting you through trial, you'll fill in the blank, you'll put extra words with these, but will this be your heart cry to God this morning? Let's say this together. I don't know. God, I need wisdom. I will joyfully endure. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God.